Hello, welcome to the LifeBridge podcast. We exist to practice the way of Jesus, participating in God's kingdom coming in Dover as it is in heaven. My name is Tyler Saldana and I'm the pastor of our church community. We are so grateful that you're checking out our church's podcast. We pray that the Spirit uses this podcast to encourage you in your following of Jesus. Good morning. All right, I'm going to jump right in. Um, Galileo Galilee was a late 16th century, early 17th century astronomer from Italy. One of his main contributions to human understanding was his development of Copernicus's model of heliocentrism. Big word, heliocentrism. Helio means around the sun. Uh, This model, which was controversial at the time and for quite a few centuries, uh, stated that instead of the Earth being the center of the universe, the sun was now the center of the universe, and the Earth is what moved. The sun was still. Now, the view was even more radical when his predecessor, Copernicus, the gentleman who the the model is named after, Nicholas, or Nicholas Copernicus from Poland, Uh, developed this in the mid-1500s. Now, he stated this as well, that the sun, not the earth, was the center of the universe. Now, he, a a follower of Jesus, was highly condemned by the both Protestant and Roman Catholic churches at the time. At this time, if you're familiar with church history in the early to mid-1500s, that's when the Protestant Reformation happens where the church splits from Roman Catholicism. We now have multiple branches, aside from Orthodox already, of Christian faith. But Copernicus was questioned. His integrity was questioned. His view of the scriptures was questioned. His his faith was questioned. The legitimacy of it. Why? Well, because the psalmist said in Psalm 96.10, Say among the nations, the Lord is king. The world is firmly established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. There, the church was seeing that the scriptures say the earth doesn't move. It's things that move around the earth. In Ecclesiastes 1.5, they reference the sun rises, the sun goes down, and hurries to the place where it rises. Before Copernicus's works were even published for, uh, for at that point, Western Europe to even review and potentially tear apart, Martin Luther, father of the Protestant Reformation, had already been critiquing his theory. A student of Luther's recorded his words, and uh, he later essentially, you know, in critique of Copernicus, and Luther remarked, so it goes now, whoever wants to be clever must do something of his own, meaning outside of the truth of Scripture. This is what that fellow does who wishes to turn the whole astronomy upside down. I believe the Holy Scriptures, for Joshua commanded the sun to stand still and not the earth. So if you're unfamiliar with this, he's quoting the book of Joshua in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, where in that book it says, On the day the Lord gave the Amorites into the power of Israel, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the presence of the Israelites, and Joshua said, Sun, stand still at Gibeon, and moon at the Ahalan Valley. 
The sun stood still and the moon stood motionless until a nation took revenge on its enemies. So in Luther's perspective, and much of the church at that point is saying, it's not the earth that moves, it's the sun and the moon that moves. The scriptures say that. So this is contradicting the scriptures. John Calvin, a later reformer, was also highly condemning of this reimagining of human understanding. In his commentary on Genesis, he condemned anyone who was even sympathetic to the idea that the earth was not the center of the, universe, uh, of the solar system, but the sun. He summarized his critique by quoting Psalm 93 and then questioning, who will venture to place the authority of Copernicus above that of the Holy Spirit? So back to Galileo, while he was originally against Copernicus, he was skeptical of this, him a follower of Jesus himself, he saw them as apparent contradictions with the scripture, and human understanding at the time. His mind was later changed through rigorous examination and uh, research utilizing the development called the telescope. Now looking back now, even us, we're, you know, we're just a couple hundred years removed from this, but for us, we're, we're kind of like, whoa, that's kind of weird to think that at that time, there's some of the brightest minds on the face of the earth, and they're condemning this new development. And they condemn it for a couple hundred years. The Roman Catholic Church has actually just recently in the last century, century and a half, finally undone the doctrine that was positioned, that postured the church against this model. Galileo later wrote, the Bible shows the way to go to heaven, not the way the heavens go. Now, while, while I think his statement is oversimplified, because I don't, as we talked about last week with the scriptures, the whole point of the scriptures is not so much how to go to heaven. Uh, that's not the main story, and nor do I think it's the main goal for us. The main goal is the reunification of heaven on earth, God's space and our space. His general point was made, though, that the library of scripture's primary purpose, as summarized last week, is for the development, the growth of our faith and practice our faith in and followership of Jesus. So this morning, we're looking at Article 5 of the Confession of Faith, Creation and Divine Providence. I share all this, well, I'll give you in a moment. Last week's sermon, in particular, will influence this uh, a bit as to how we uh, posed what the scriptures are and are not. To remind you, and I'll put, I'm finally going to put my number up on the screen, if you have questions, write them down, and if you are afraid to raise your hand and vocalize them, uh, you can text them in, and I can get them right here, and I can answer them at the end, or try to answer them at the end. And while I am requesting us not use devices in church, I will uh, oblige for that. Um, okay, so... The main section of Article 5 reads, and it'll be on the screen for you, we believe that God has created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, and that God preserves and renews what, has, what he has made. All creation has its source outside itself and belongs to the creator. The world has been created good because God is good and provides all that is needed for life. So that's our topic this morning that we're talking through, creation and divine providence. Next week is creation and humanity. But this is more big picture. 
According to the Barna Group, their Christian research group, um, one reason why nearly 60% of youth and young adults leave the church, there are six predominant takeaways. The third reason is that, quote, churches come across as antagonistic to science. Barna summarizes their research. One of the reasons young adults feel disconnected from church or from faith is the tension they feel between Christianity and science. The most common of the perceptions in this arena is Christians are too confident they know all the answers. That's 35%. Three out of 10 young adults with a Christian background feel that, quote, churches are out of step with scientific world we live in. Another one quarter embrace the perception that Christianity is anti-science. And nearly the same proportion said they have, quote, been turned off by the creation versus evolution debate. Furthermore, the research shows that many science-minded young Christians are struggling to find ways of staying faithful to their beliefs and to their professional calling in science-related industries. This is in particular in the States. So this is a study on America. And in particular, you, you think that the development of science-related industries, uh, if you're familiar with the term STEM, um, those are the main avenues of research that are being in encouraged and career fields that are being encouraged in this next generation. Now, I share this data with you to show you how this topic has not just been like a division, divisive within the church. It's actually been a topic that has affected our influence and our witness and our discipleship. We're losing about 60% of our young people out of the church. In America. Now this speaks nothing to the people we're trying to reach as well. This is just 60% of youth that come through the church, they leave. And one of their main reasons is this. Now the topic has placed a very real barrier between the church and our neighbors, right? Our church and our culture, hindering our witness and formation of the next generation of Jesus followers. So for me, for quite a few years, my journey with this, uh, if you're, I've, I've shared a, a little bit of my faith journey, but I was actually one of those kids. I went to private Christian school growing up through third grade. I grew up in a very, uh, both theologically and politically conservative city in Southern California. Um, everyone went to church, even if you were an atheist, you just kind of went. It's kind of like here, where it's just something you do in the culture, right? I'm not saying here, our church, but I'm saying in a Christianized culture, uh, even if you don't necessarily believe, you just kind of go, right? We kind of had that. That's, we, we grew up in a similar area. For, at that point, for me, I was led to believe that there was one way for Christians to view the scriptures, and I was led to believe that science and other means of human discovery, history, things of that sort, um, as soon as it contradicted, it's throw it out. There's no really there's really no discussion at the table. There's no room for it. So I heard this both in the church and I heard this in the classroom. I actually was kicked out of my ninth grade science class for about a week when they taught evolution uh, because I was a staunch anti-evolutionist. Um, I, I, don't, I don't say was because past tense. I, I'm just saying like that's old Tyler then. Um, and I was really upset and debating my science teacher at the time. Um, Mama Seldonia was very happy with teenage Tyler at that point. Now, because of this tension and the apparent hard lines that were drawn in the culture war sand, the church eventually lost me. 
Uh, I eventually leave shortly after this event in ninth grade. Uh, it wasn't until the end of my senior year in high school that I began to connect with who would eventually become my youth pastor, Steve. Uh, and he still to this day is a very pivotal person in my faith journey and still connect with him, still love him and his wife dearly, both Aaron and I do. Uh, but the beauty of that time, what really helped uh, soften my heart, I think, and I think expand my mind, was he showed me that the lines are not that hard in some of these. That keep the main things the main things. Jesus, the resurrection, the authority of scriptures, that God's in control, being led by the Spirit, and things of that sort. He, he let me see that it was okay to doubt. He showed me that in the Gospels, you know, even the apostles, even after the resurrection, some of them are still doubting, seeing him right there, the resurrected Jesus, that God can handle our doubts, that God can handle our questions, that doesn't have to keep you outside the doors of church. And so the last semester of my high school tenure was this journey. I was in his office multiple days a week after church, or after school, uh, just borrowing books of old dead guys, or just a lot of these books called, and, and I'll reference them later, uh, but Zondervan is a Christian publisher. Zondervan Academic has a series called Counterpoints. And basically, it's, sometimes it's like three views on hell, or four views on this, or, and it's different Christian scholars from different perspectives, and they write their position, and then they respond to each other. And essentially, what he was allowing me to see was that there's a lot of views that, not like the resurrection, not the majors, but some secondary issues. There'll be like four views on baptism, whether or not infants should be baptized, or whether or not believers, or if it's immersion or sprinkling, and they kind of interact with each other, and it's a dialogue, but in a book. But that opened my mind to the possibility of being welcomed in the church. Now, I hadn't it wasn't like 17-year-old, oh, I was 16, huh? Yeah, it wasn't like 16-year-old Tyler had like arrived at human understanding of all knowledge. It took me a few years to get there. Um, <laughs> um, but um, still, I was, you know, at that point, I was hesitant to step in because I was afraid of, hey, that I have to fit into one mold. Now, part of what we're doing in this series is talking through what are the majors, what do we hold tight, and what are secondary components of those doctrines that each of us at the table might have different views or a broad spectrum of views. Now, Steve essentially moved the dividing lines for me. He had me focus on the evidence for Jesus and the resurrection, and that was what really started me, and then eventually I got to the authority of scripture and so forth, and I began believing in and following Jesus from there. But this changed really everything for me. The resurrection is what changed everything. That's why when I meet with people who don't believe in Jesus yet, I, I start with that, right? <laughs> I start with the resurrection. That's what got me personally, the main thing. For me, my answer was found in the resurrection. Now, how was I to reconcile some of the things I thought to be true with my newfound faith in Jesus? By helping me focus on these primary doctrines of faith and the reality of Jesus, his life, death, resurrection, Steve began to alleviate the burden for me. I think through the power, I think the spirit was working through Steve that that did not shut the door of the church on me. It broke down that lie that I wasn't welcomed in the church. 
And that's when, yeah, through those books and C.S. Lewis and things of that sort, authors of that sort helped me work through these. Now, the reality is, as we enter this topic, if we pulled our congregation, not just on this topic, but on a lot of topics, we will not all be the same. Um, it, it's, just a it's just true. Um, and even in the global church and throughout church history, we would likely even disagree about which doctrines do matter, which doctrines are primary, and which doctrines we say are room for discussion at the table. We might even decide where the line is differently. And that's okay. In other words, we might disagree even on which doctrines we unite around and even divide in light of, and which doctrines we extend grace and understanding for one another. So, let's actually look at the main passage this morning. We're going to start on the first page of the scriptures, Genesis 1. We're going to I'm going to, what I'm going to do, I'm going to read Genesis 1 and 2. I don't have it on the screen intentionally, but uh, just so if you have the scriptures before you, I think it's helpful. Um, it was also a lot of slides for our slide guys back there. I'm going to read through Genesis 1 and 2. And again, we're keeping before us God as creator and his divine providence. All right, starting in verse 1. When God began to create the heavens and the earth, the earth was without, was without shape or form. It was dark over the deep sea, and God's wind swept over the waters. God said, let there be light, and so light appeared. God saw how good the light was. God separated the light from darkness, and God named the light day and the darkness night. There was evening and there was morning the first day. God said, let there be a dome in the middle of the waters to separate the waters from each other. God made the dome and separated the waters under the dome from the waters above the dome. And it happened in that way. God named the dome sky. There was evening and there was morning the second day. God said, let the waters under the sky come together into one place so that the dry land can appear. And that's what happened. God named the dry land earth, and he named the gathered waters seas. God saw how good it was. God said, let the earth grow plant life, plants yielding seeds and fruit trees, bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind throughout the earth. And that's what happened. The earth produced plant life, plants yielding seeds, earth according, or each according to its kind, and trees bearing fruit with seeds inside it, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning the third day. Now God said, let there be light in the dome of the sky to separate the day from the night and years. Uh, the night. They will mark events, sacred seasons, days, and years. They will be lights in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth. And that's what happened. God made the stars and two great lights, the large light to rule over the day and the smaller light to rule over the night. God put them in the dome of the sky to shine on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and how to separate the light from darkness. God saw how good it was. There was evening and there was morning the fourth day. God said, 
Let the waters swarm with living things and let birds fly above the earth up in the dome of the sky. God created the great sea animals and all the tiny living things that swarm in the waters, each according to its kind, and all the winged birds, each according to its kind. God saw how good it was. Then God blessed them, be fertile and multiply and fill the earth in the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning the fifth day. God said, let the earth produce every kind of living thing, livestock, crawling things, and wildlife. And that's what happened. Hey. Oh. Pedro. This is Pedro, right? Pedro. Oh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> thank you. God made every kind of wildlife, every kind of livestock, and every kind of creature that crawls on the ground. God saw how good it was. Then God said, let us make humanity in our image to resemble us so that we may take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, all the earth, and all the crawling things on the earth. And God created humanity in God's own image. In the divine image, God created them. Male and female, God created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fertile and multiply, fill the earth and master it. Take charge of the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and everything crawling on the ground. Then God said, I now give to you all the plants on the earth that yield seeds and all the trees whose fruit produces all its seeds within it. These will be your food. To all the wildlife, to all the birds in the sky, to everything crawling on the ground, to everything that breathes, I give all the green grasses for food. And that's what happened. God saw everything he had made. It was supremely good. There was evening and there was morning the sixth day. We're at chapter 2. The heavens and the earth and all who live in them were completed. On the sixth day, God completed all the work that he had done. And on the seventh day, God restored from all the work that he had done. Or he rested, sorry, from all the work that he had done. God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work of creation. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. And some of your scriptures might have a header right here in the middle of verse 4. Here we go. On the day the Lord God made the earth and sky, before any wild plants appeared on the earth, and before any field crops, because the Lord God hadn't yet sent rain on the earth, and there was still no human being to farm the fertile land, though a stream rose from the earth and watered all the fertile land. The Lord God formed the human from the topsoil of the fertile and he blew life's breath into his nostrils. The human came to life. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and put there the human he had formed. In the fertile land, the Lord God grew every beautiful tree with edible fruits, and also he grew the tree of life in the middle of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flows from Eden to water the garden, and from there it divides into four headwaters. The name of the first, let's jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the human and settled him in the garden of Eden to farm it and to take care of it. The Lord God commanded the human, eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on the day you eat from it, you will die. Then the Lord God said, it's not good that the human is alone. I will make him a helper that is a perfect fit for him. 
So the Lord God formed from the fertile land all the wild animals and all the birds of the sky and brought them to the human to see what would name them. The human gave each living being its name. The human named all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, and the wild animals. But a helper perfect for him was nowhere to be found. So the Lord God put the human into deep, heavy sleep and took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh over it. With the rib taken from the human, the Lord God fashioned a woman and brought her to the human being. The human said, this one finally is bone from my bones, flesh from my flesh. She will be called a woman because from a man she was taken. This is the reason that a man leaves his father and mother and embraces his wife, and they become one flesh. The two of them were naked, the man and his wife, but they weren't embarrassed. Okay, that was a lot. Few things we notice before we get into a little bit. Few, well, if you didn't notice already, it's divided into two stories. One, verse one, all the way to two, halfway through verse four. Then you start the second half of verse four all the way to the end of chapter two. These are two different stories, seemingly, at face value. A few things that are important to notice that can be different here. In chapter 1, God is only referred to as God, as Elohim. In chapter 2, he's referred to as Lord God, Jehovah Elohim. He's never referred to, they're kind of referred to as two different names there. In chapter, uh, a second thing to notice, in chapter 1, everything's created in six days. But in chapter 2, if you look at the second half of verse 4, on the, Lord God, on the day the Lord God made earth and the sky, it all takes place seemingly on one day. Another thing to notice, pre-creation is dark, watery chaos in chapter 1 versus desert-like oasis in chapter 2. The sequences are different, too. In chapter 1, God creates light, non-solar light, right? There isn't a sun yet. The sun comes later. Then he creates a sky dome. It's a solid. And he creates dry land, plants, light set in the sky dome, sea and sky creatures, land animals, and then humans. In the Genesis 2 account, God creates, he creates man, then the garden with trees and rivers, then land animals and birds, and then women. They're created out of order. They don't line up same order. Now, another thing to notice is that God created humans after everything else in the first account versus God created everything before everyone else. The second creation narrative specifically says there wasn't anything to farm yet because God hadn't created man yet on the earth to take care of the ground, to farm. In the first account, it seems to say that God created man and woman at the same time on day six. On the second one, it says man, then animals, then women, which again, animals actually come before man I think they become on day five in the first account. In the first account, it actually doesn't specify how many humans. It just says God created humanity in his image. Versus in the second account, it says one couple. Two more things to notice. God spoke the things into existence in Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2. God worked to create. He put him to sleep. He took something from the woman. He, he breathed life into them. The first one is just he spoke and it happened. 
So they seem to be telling it differently or a different version. The last thing, after creation, it was good, God was pleased, and so he rests on the seventh day. And in, <clears throat> and in the second account, God actually ends up banishing the first couple from the garden, seemingly all on the same day. We don't really get a sequence of days. It's unclear. Now, the main point, as we set the table before we go into these, the main point of this article, this article that we are affirming before us this morning is not how God creates and sustains everything. Uh, rather, the main point is that he actually does create and sustain everything. Does that make sense? To clarify, it's not how, but who. It's not when or how long, but, but why. That's what the article summarizes, and that's arguably, I would, I would argue, how we should take one and two. And that's where it leaves some things. What is not on the table for discussion is who created. What is not on the table for discussion is why it was created. What church history has left open on the table is how God created and when or for how long. So that's what we're called to unity with regards to, based on the article, that God is our creator, God's our sustainer, absolutely nothing could exist apart from him, absolutely nothing existed before him, he has always been, he will always be in him, everything is held together. And so that's where we get, uh, I want to walk through a couple things here. Some of you may be wondering, like young Tyler, what views are still in line with scripture? Is my view of this, or how I've landed on it, or where I'm at at this point, is it within the boundaries of Christian orthodoxy? Um, or even more so, like young Tyler asked, am I welcome here with my theological view? So, there's quite a few views of how to work this out, and I'm just going to walk them through that I think are acceptable per the confession of faith. Again, the boxes that need to be checked, if you will, are that God is the creator, God's in control, God's the sustainer, it is made for him, who created is what's non-negotiable, how it was created is what Jesus followers have been debating for centuries in living rooms, pubs, coffee shops, Bible studies, and so forth for nearly two millennia. I do want to show you these books. <clears throat> do we have a slide of these? Um, these are the books that I was handed when I was younger. And this actual series, there's like 40 of them. They're all different topics, but these four in particular, if this topic interests you, I recommend these. These are all by conservative theologians, uh, and they all take different vantage points. Uh, some of you may be familiar with some of these people like A. John Walton or a Ken Ham or a Greg Boyd. They all kind of take different vantage points, Stephen Meyer, Hugh Ross. Uh, but they all are within the realms of orthodoxy. And they all state their argument, and then they respond and dialogue with one another. It's kind of an interesting, if you're, if you're like me, I enjoy reading and listening to those. But I want to walk through briefly, hold me to that, briefly, <laughs> the acceptable views. Let's start with the first one. Uh, young Earth Creationism Theory. This is just a plain reading of the scripture. Actual 24-hour sequential days believe the Earth to be between roughly six and 10,000 years old due to the datings of the genealogies that were counted a couple centuries ago. Someone sat down and counted up the, the genealogies. If they're all literal, then it should date them back around that time frame. 
Um, this view tends to refute any science or history that claims to state otherwise. Um, people you might be familiar in this realm are a guy named Ken Ham. Answers in Genesis is his organization. Uh, he's an Austra Australian guy, but he's here now. I think he's in Kentucky. Uh, and then a, a pastor would be John MacArthur, you might be aware of. He holds to a young earth view. Similar to this view is a second view, mature creation theory. This essentially says that God created everything six to 10,000 years ago. It's very similar to young earth, but with the appearance of age. So, meaning God created Adam and Eve. Now they're fully grown human beings, but how old are they? They're zero, they're babies. So therefore, they, they translate that to all of the natural world, that it looks like it's old, it looks like it's billions of years old, so therefore, the dating from our scientific research is technically accurate, but it's not actually how old the Earth is. God created it with the appearance of age, even though it's young. Um, the only pushback, well, I don't want to get into pushbacks. Uh, a third one, gap theory. There's a big theory here that between chapter 1, verse 1, and verse 2, there's just a time gap. Um, and it kind of leaves open the account for when spiritual beings fell. So when, like, we don't really have an account of when Lucifer and all this, when, when part of some of the angel army fell and there was this um, war and so forth. And, and um, some translations will translate that verse, the earth became without form and void. And then that one... But the rest of the creation story is God restoring order. And the, and the apex of that is the agent of humanity to be his image bearer to restore order and goodness and beauty in all of creation. People that you might be familiar in this, they still believe in seven sequential 24-hour days. They just think there's a time gap. Which kind of, they, they tend to say, leaves open for some of the scientific discoveries and things of that sort. Uh, general, uh, scholars you might be aware of, well, this is referred to as intelligent design. William Lane Craig, up until a couple years ago, I think, handled here, he's, he's kind of our biggest apologist alive today. He's like the top, um, yeah, defender of the faith, I would argue today. Uh, but he may have actually just switched. He just came out with a, a book on the historical Adam, and so I'd have to read that. Uh, Wayne Grudem, Charles Hodge, and Philip Johnson, those are notable names. Fourth one, local creation theory. This one believes that uh, they really take into the, the approach of Genesis that God is, and, and everyone does this, but they really zone in on this, that Genesis is written to the Israelites asking the question, who really is God who did all this? Um, and so in the culture, the Israelites are around in the Middle East, in the ancient, or in the ancient Near East, right there, they're told that people worship the sun, and they're told that there's hundreds, thousands of gods. And this is God writing through Moses, summarizing, no, you've heard these creation narratives, because if you're unfamiliar, there are a lot of creation narratives that even predate this one in history that have a lot of similarities. Uh, and so they would argue Moses, or whoever wrote it, was recalibrating it and speaking to them in their cultural vantage point in this creation narrative but making it so that it is one God, it is the God of Israel, and therefore. That's the local creation theory. They also believe that at that point there's already humans there, and essentially this is God creating his people in the midst of a world that had already been developed, and there's people. 
That's, that's one view. That's the local creation theory. They kind of get this too because within the next generation or two, all of a sudden there's civilizations and cities. And so they're like, where did all those people come from? And so it seems to indicate that there are other people on the face of the earth that Adam and Eve, I don't know if they had time to be that fruitful, if you get what I mean. Um, that's that view. Um, the day-age theory. This is fifth option. For them, they believe that the word for day, yom, can sometimes refer to as an extended period of time. So they would believe that each day is an extended period of time. They're not sequential days, but they're actually the first age, the second age. This leaves room for prehistoric age. Yeah, all these different types of things. It leaves room for dinosaurs and ice age to happen. One thing they say, <clears throat> they point out, is that the seventh day never ends. And that is an interesting thing. That was one of the first, I remember Hugh Ross, one of the adherents to this, his organization is called Reason to Believe. He's an astronomer. Um, he came to faith through some of this, but uh, Genesis, or day seven, doesn't have a beginning and end. It's kind of a weird thing. Everything else ends with, and that, there was day and there was night, and that, that was the end of the day. Day seven doesn't end. So he believes, and his people of that framework, name is Gleason Archer's a notable Old Testament theologian, they believe that we are actually in the seventh day. We are in the day of rest, if you will, the age of rest. They wouldn't call it day, they would actually call it age. But that's Yom, that's the day-age theory. Two more. Framework theory. I think this one's similar to the last one. The framework theory, this is, uh, this is interesting. Uh, you might know this from guys like Timothy Keller and Bruce Waltke tend to land here. Um, essentially, the first three days are uh, kingdoms or environments. Another uh, a New Testament prof out of, uh, or an Old Testament prof out of Westmont in Santa Barbara, she has a really interesting book on uh, environmental stewardship from a Christian perspective, and it kind of is rooted, she thinks, in the Genesis 1 story that the first three days are kingdoms, their realms, their spaces, their environments. The second three days... God fills the spaces, and then the, the, the last day he rests. He's done. So walk that through. Uh, they emphasize that Genesis is a theological book, not specifically a science book. It says that Genesis is answering the question, who is God who has called us out of Egypt? At that point, the, the dating of the writing is this. If you recall, the, the Israelites had been in uh, slavery for generations, their people have kind of grown weary. You say this God loves us, this God is for us, this God has covenanted with us. We've been in slavery for generations as long as we can tell. And now we're let out of slavery and we're in the desert. I don't know if this God is really for us. And so that's what prompts the writing of the first five books of the scriptures, in particular Genesis. And they're asking that question. Who is this God who has called us out of Egypt? And they would argue that the author of Genesis is primarily trying to answer that question. Who is this God? Not how exactly and when exactly did this God create us. They're more just putting them in the cultural context. They've just been indoctrinated by Egyptian culture where God of the scriptures is just not relevant. That would be that view. Um, I actually don't have the chart up. There's an interesting chart there as their framework. But the last one would be functional versus material creation theory. 
These are pretty similar, the, the previous one, the framework, and this one. This one states that Genesis is, a re, is about material origin, uh, isn't about material origins, but functional origins, meaning there's stuff and God is giving it purpose. So uh, the ancient people, including Israel, were much more attuned to the function of the cosmos than to the material of the cosmos. This is something that John Walton, Francis Collins, if you're familiar with him, he wrote uh, the, oh, I forgot that book. Uh, forgive me. He, he was the head of the Human Genome Project a few years ago. Uh, he was, yeah, he's kind of a big deal. He eventually started, a, this would be like BioLogos. It's kind of like A, Answers in Genesis, but for people who are at least open to the view that uh, God could have created through the process of evolution. That's kind of this view. Uh, Rebecca McLaughlin might be in there, N.T. Wright. Keller's, the, the, this is where they overlap. Tim Keller would be in there as well. Um, each of these views, okay, we're done with the views. That was a lot. Each of these views have their holes. Every single one. Some of you might be like, I'm, I'm set on my view, and what's the hole? There's holes. There's holes. None of them, I repeat, none of them are flawless, and none of them have been unanimous in church history. They just haven't. They may have been unanimous in certain denominations, but it hasn't been unanimous in church history. We have been open to it. Although, the example I cited earlier of just sometimes how we ostracize people for questioning, um, we're really quick to point out the speck in someone's eye, right? So, two notable 20th century pastors, John Stott. One of the most famous influential ministers of 20th century. He wrote The Cross of Christ. He wrote this. It is most unfortunate, most unfortunate that some who debate this issue, he's referring to evolution, begin by assuming that the words creation and evolution are mutually exclusive. If everything has come into existence through evolution, they say, then biblical creation has been disproved. Whereas if God had created all things, then evolution must be false. It is rather this naive alternative which is false. Similarly, renowned revivalist Billy Graham I was surprised to read that Billy Graham said this. I don't think that there's any conflict at all between science today and the scriptures. I think that we have misinterpreted the scriptures many times and we've tried to make the scriptures say things they weren't meant to say. It's kind of like what we were talking about last week in scriptures where sometimes we ask the scriptures to say something that they just, they weren't trying to answer that question. He said, I think we have made a mistake by thinking the Bible is a scientific book. The Bible is not a book of science. The Bible is a book of redemption, and of course I accept the creation story. I believe that God did create the universe. I believe that God created man, and, and whether it came by an evolutionary process, and at a certain point he took this person or being and made him a living soul or not, does not change the fact that God did create man. Whichever way God did it makes no difference as to what man is and man's relationship to God. Both of these notable very theologically conservative evangelicals of the last century. Still saying, I don't know that any of them actually affirm a theological, uh, a theistic evolution perspective, but they at least affirm the reality that it's, that it doesn't have to deter. They're at least saying, hey, if, if my brother does believe that, they're welcome at the table. They're welcome in the worship service. They are still followers of Jesus. She's not happy about that. 
Now, some may critique a few of these theories perhaps as not taking the Bible literally or having a low view of scriptures. And I would caution us, these are pretty bold statements to say that we're not taking the Bible literally or we allow other things to speak over the truth of scripture. I think that's an oversimplification. If you want to talk through that more, I can. It, it's just, I think that's an unfair judgment on your brother and sister of Christ who might hold that position. And what does literally really mean? Is it like literally what they meant? Or is it like Southern California literal, like literally it's the hottest ever? Like, um, so what does literally mean? But we can talk that through more if you'd like to later. I will also add that some churches and even some Christians may disagree whether or not those seven views I pointed at are within orthodoxy. Um, I say you're welcome to that belief. I would say I don't hold that belief. I believe anyone who holds to those, as long as they affirm the resurrection and they're following Jesus and they're spirit-led and authority of Scripture and, and so forth, you, you are a Jesus follower if you hold to any of those views. I may not agree with them all. I actually don't think any of them are perfect. Um, and maybe for every day of the week, I pick seven, so you can be a different view. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I think they're all orthodox. They are within the realm of orthodoxy. Some might actually include more. But to, to that, I, I, I just, again, I caution us to draw a line in the sand where church history, really just anything outside of some of those majors, that we don't need to draw that line. It, it could be an unnecessary stumbling block like it was for young Tyler. And again, back to just our witness in 21st, this is mainly an American conversation. Most of the global church isn't really even talking about this. It's kind of interesting. What does that tell us on how big of a deal it actually is when most of the church at this point in human history doesn't care? Um, they just don't. It's mainly American. It's kind of gotten to the UK recently, um, but that's about it. The point of this article and the point that, that Christians have always landed on together, united around, is that God alone is our creator. God alone is the one who sustains all things. God alone allows and gives power to all things. So why does this matter to us? Well, I want to stir you away from why does which of those seven theories is important. Those are fun conversations, but man... I don't know about you, they don't really affect my faith that much. What does affect my faith and what, what really is the point of this article and this doctrine is that God is in control. God is in control. God is in control of all things. He's the creator. He made things good. He made them to glorify him. He made them to reflect him. That's why the, the passage Aaron read earlier, Romans eleven thirty six. So, you know, for, from him and to him and for him are all things forever. Amen. He receives all the glory. To put our hope or trust in human abilities and nature, power of nations, institutions, riches or weapons, looks, health, any other temporary created thing is the way to death. It's not the way of Jesus. It will not last. God is our creator. God is our sustainer. And God is what can truly comfort us. His control is what comforts. 
I don't know about you, but if you take a stern position on your view of how God made the universe, I don't know that when, like, hell breaks into my life and there's, like, a dark night or season of the soul, am I like, yes, well, at least I know my view on how the universe was started. No. It doesn't come up. It doesn't. I know that he made it and he holds it and so forth. That's what sustains me. That's what nourishes me. That's what keeps me going, knowing that God is good, God is in control, God is working all things for his glory and for our joy. So, what are some implications before we wrap up? Regardless of what position we take. One, worship the creator, not the creation. These passages, the first couple passages in Genesis, are reminding us who is worthy of our worship. The creator, not the creation. God made everything beautiful and hospitable. And whether you take, even if you don't take that framework theory of the environments versus filling it, there is still some theological um, justification for seeing that God is a hospitable God. He created these realms, these rooms, if you will, in nature, and then he filled them, and he filled them, he created them beautiful, orderly, majestic, and then he put his created beings in there to enjoy it, to see him, to appreciate, to experience him, and to continue pushing it forward. God made everything beautiful and hospitable. Therefore, we can worship God by continuing to do so, whether it be through, yeah, cultivating the environment, through farming, through gardening, through art, through technological advancements. I mean, there's so many different ways we can continue to bring forth God's beauty and hospitality. A second implication, be humble. <laughs> humble ourselves. There have been and are bright, genuine, Jesus-following, spirit-led, Bible-believing people who think and believe in each of the major varying views I shared today. So, if it's scary, I understand, but know that God is sovereign. Humble ourselves. See, don't question their faith over this. If they are affirming Jesus, his resurrection, his scriptures, following his spirit. Third implication, if your theological position affirms that God created everything utilizing the process of evolution. So the last two options, I think, open that up most if you... Uh, view that God could have created through that process, that Genesis 1 and 2 is a little more metaphorical, I strongly urge you to at least reject social Darwinism, which is the process of evolution played out in society, meaning uh, the biological process is not a worldview that Christians should adhere to, meaning survival of the fittest, dominating the weak, destroying those who are helpless, stepping on anyone and everyone for the sake of my leisure. Reject that. Because while that may be fit into your view of the process, the biological process, the way of Jesus and the kingdom, the doctrine speaking into that potential fallen process is trying to reverse that, that God's people are to be in that, but then live differently, to be other, to respond and be different than that process. So if that is you, 
This doesn't justify infanticide, euthanasia, imperialism, racism, anything of that sort. No, it calls Jesus' followers to realize humans' inclination to those and do otherwise. Fourth implication, be builders and restorers. This means that Jesus' followers are a part of building and restoring social systems, nonprofits, homes, communities, schools, all those types of things. We are a part of building more hospitable environments. See hospitality more than flowers on a table and a nice sofa and warm cookies, but know a community, a world, a place of beauty and order and so on. We are meant to build and restore, not to tear down and destroy. Fifth implication, work and rest are good. We're not meant to work all the time. We're not meant to rest all the time either. For some reason, Sabbath is the only commandment where we just kind of are like, hmm, I don't know. We don't have to obey that. No, we're called to Sabbath, just as God, Sabbath, to rest one day a week from our work. And that just doesn't mean don't clock in that week, but no, it actually means Rest from things that hurry your soul, that inter interfere with your relationship with God. And lastly, and I want to say this just speaking back to young Tyler and Barna Group Research. Evangelistically, don't set up stumbling blocks. We don't need to draw unnecessary lines in the sand. And friends, even if you hold to one, one of these views, it doesn't have to divide us. It just doesn't. It can, and people tell us, and even some of the leaders on some of those teams tell us it divides us. They don't affirm the authority of Scripture, or they don't do this, or they don't believe science. Or it doesn't have to do that. We don't have to throw stones at each other. We don't have to draw unnecessary lines in the sand, but I would say we don't have to draw unnecessary lines in the sand for people outside the church and young people who are growing up and trying to figure out if I believe in this guy called Jesus, if I want to follow him, if I think his church is a people that I want to commit my life to. There's a book uh, on evangelism. My favorite book on evangelism is called Questioning Evangelism. It's by a guy named Randy Newman. Not that you got a friend in me, Toy Story guy, but just some other dude. I don't even know what he looks like. But um, yeah, One Christianity, today's book of the year, about a decade ago, and one of the things he points out is that the main way that Jesus reached non-Christians or people who did not believe in him, I wouldn't have called them Christians in, in his day yet, but people who didn't believe in him and want to follow him, one of the main ways he reached them was not so much answering their questions, but you ask me a question and he goes, well, what do you think? What does it say? What do the scriptures say? Well, what does that say? And his uh, Newman's whole point is that um, essentially in, instead of being on defense where say someone who holds to a certain point of view comes in and he's like, well you believe this about Genesis or whatever or anything like that or you believe this about women or, or this or something like that. Instead of, yeah you could talk it through a little bit, but instead, well what do you think? Well why do you think that? What, what is the foundation of your belief there? He kind of gets to that, trying, asking questions, getting to the heart, trying to uncover the architecture, if you will, the blueprints as to why they see the world the way they do. And so for me, for example, uh, someone who was more interested 
in evolutionary biology by the end of high school, uh, one thing that was pointed out to me was if you affirm evolution, for example, uh, you would say that, well, if you realize, you got to acknowledge that it is a process. So if you will, it's like dominoes. If there's a trail of dominoes going around, the, do the process in that framework believes that the dominoes are falling. And they believe they know why the dominoes are falling or how they're falling. But it demands someone to push the first domino. And so for us, that's an entryway. For us, we say, you, it sounds like you need some sort of deity or you need some sort of person or thing outside of humanity or nature or existence, uh, whatever it may be, whatever you want to call it, to press that first domino to initiate the process. Similarly, the Big Bang Theory, uh, which I don't even think they'd call it big, a theory anymore, unless you're referring to the show. Um, but Big Bang cosmologists would affirm that something came out of nothing, and out of nowhere, all of a sudden, the universe and was, was here. Well, they can only explain that it happened. They cannot explain what made it happen. For us, there's a blank there. And we're like, well, we've got this guy called God. Um, and then it, it's kind of an entryway. It's like, for me, I believe, and, and Big Bang can actually sound like Genesis 1-1, honestly. Um, whether or not the timing, that's totally up for debate. But you see what I mean? You're, you're stepping into their framework. You're trying to get in their shoes. You're trying to get into their worldview. Why do you see the world you, the way you see it? And then when you point out, instead of getting defensive about your views, you're, you're starting to understand, not just to win an argument, but to welcome a friend, to try and see the world the way they see it. Because behind these are systems. They're not just scientific systems, but they can be ways in which shape their entire understanding of human existence, their motivations for life. So both of those, I think, point out to, um, those are good examples as to how we can step into the shoes of people outside the church. Because even, I, I've quoted him often in this series, and I'll wrap up with this, uh, Richard Dawkins, there's a long discussion with him in light of his God Delusion book, and then they keep pressing him, because you're saying, hey, what started Big Bang? What, what initiated evolution? And he eventually gets down to it could be this one, I don't know what it is, but science will never tell us. Science doesn't uncover things that aren't seen. And so it will never prove a God. But he's like, it could be something. This something is like, would you call it God? No. What could it be? And it, and it kind of even got out to this weird potential being where we're like, That's, you're saying there's a possibility that there's a God. And uh, it kind of was uncovered that he's not an atheist. He's really an agnostic, and he just feels like he can never go, know God. But helping people see that even your systems, your worldview, the reason you believe what you believe and live the way you live is rooted in who we call the God of Scriptures. Similarly, you know, when you talk about ethics or you, you interact with people, social justice warriors and things like that, well, why do you believe Injustice. Why do you believe all humans are worthy of blank? Why? If social Darwinism is true, well, if they're weak, well, let's, let's get rid of them. They're hurting the environment. They're taking resources. Things cost a lot right now. Maybe, you know, my target every week is out of half the products I want to buy at the shelf. So if we let the, the weak die, maybe they won't be out of it. No, we don't actually believe that. But social Darwinism tells you you should believe that. And so you walk through those. These are big concepts, but 
instead of being fearful, be affirmed that the God of scriptures is in control, that he is our creator, he's our sustainer, he's the author and perfecter of our faith, he holds all things together, and then know that, uh, man, our role is not to defend in that regard, but to actually just go out and be image bearers in our community. All right, I'm going to leave it at there. Thanks for tuning in to the LifeBridge podcast. For more information about our church, please visit lifebridgedover.org. There you'll be able to find out more about the church community, our ministries, ways to get involved, recommended resources, and to give. Be sure to subscribe to receive new episodes directly into your podcast feed. While we are glad that you're checking out our podcast feed, we believe that the New Testament teaches that church worship is to be experienced weekly, in person, within your local church community. Thus, we encourage you to either join us in person for Sunday morning worship or to find and commit to a local gospel-centered church community in your neighborhood. Thanks.